Please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. As you have already heard, today is the first week of Advent, and we're going to be spending this Advent season with the prophet Isaiah. As Chauncey has already mentioned, Advent is a season of waiting, a season of hope, and a season of preparation. This, this time of Advent orients our hearts to be able to celebrate the holy day of Christmas with joy. And one of the ways that it does that is by helping us connect the dots in our minds between two Advents. If you didn't know, the word Advent just means coming or appearance or arrival. And traditionally, the Advent season is trying to ask us to connect the dots between the two comings of Jesus, his two arrivals on earth. The first advent of Jesus is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus came as a human baby. The almighty God clothed himself in human weakness for us and for our salvation. That coming of Jesus culminated in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, where God embraced our sin, our death and our damnation so that we could be forgiven and in the resurrection of Jesus. But there's a second advent of Jesus that we're still waiting for. And in the second advent of Jesus, he's coming not as a baby in a manger, but as a king riding on a white horse. He's coming in glory. He's coming to bring God's righteousness and justice to the world to overthrow evil. Do we need some of that, church? He's coming in mercy to gather to himself Forgiven sinners whom he has made saints by the power of his blood from every tribe and language and people and nation to reign with him and his new creation. And to understand the first advent, we have to think of it in light of the second advent. We prepare ourselves to celebrate the holy day of Christmas with holy hearts by preparing ourselves for the second coming of Jesus. And traditionally, the church gives attention to the prophet Isaiah during this time for many reasons. 
Isaiah points us towards the first and second comings of Jesus. But also, Isaiah is a prophet of hope who teaches people the spiritual disciplines of waiting, of hope, and of preparation. Isaiah was born probably about 800 years before Jesus was born, and he conducted his ministry in situations that were largely situations of darkness, difficult spiritual times. Circumstances forced Isaiah to talk often about sin and judgment and repentance. But really, Isaiah is preeminently the prophet of hope. In his public ministry, he's saying to the faithful remnant of Israel, put your hope in God. The darkness of today is not the last word in the history of the world. God's light is coming. But Isaiah didn't just have a public ministry as a prophet. Isaiah also had a personal ministry. Isaiah was actually a disciple maker. And Isaiah taught his disciples to hold fast to the word of the Lord, to wait for the Lord when it feels like God is hiding himself, to put their hopes in the Lord and to live in the present as a sign of God's good future. To be a person of hope is to live here and now as a sign of God's coming kingdom. I didn't make all that up. It's in chapter eight if you want to go study it this week. But today's text from chapter two really helps us to orient ourselves to these grand themes in Isaiah. And my plan for today is just to walk through Isaiah two, one through five, this short and powerful passage line by line, and then to step back and ask the question, how can Isaiah's vision from Isaiah chapter two shape us as disciples of Jesus today, especially in this Advent season? So I want to invite you to give your attention with me to the text now. But before we do that, why don't we just bow our heads one more time and quiet our hearts before the Lord? I want to encourage you where you are to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. I don't know what's your spiritual condition this morning, how encouraged or discouraged you may be feeling. I know many in this room are mature followers of Jesus, and some in this room are spiritual seekers trying to decide if you want to become a Christian. And I would say all of us need some hope. Is that true, church? So let's pray, each of us where we are, that God will speak to us and teach us to be a people of hope today. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, asking for the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help me to speak every word you want me to speak and none that you do not want me to speak. Help us to have ears to hear, minds to understand and remember, hearts to believe. I pray that you would renew our minds and that you would bring renewal and transformation of our imaginations today as we learn to see reality through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Look with me again at verse one. Our text starts saying the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Now, already that should make us pause. The word that Isaiah saw. Usually you hear words and you see pictures, right? But this is the word that Isaiah saw. Because Isaiah is not only a prophet who speaks the word of the Lord, Isaiah is a seer, which means God gives Isaiah visions. God gives Isaiah pictures. And then the Holy Spirit 
inspires Isaiah to describe the picture that he's seen so that we can picture it. So if you're a picture person, if you're a visual person, this is, a, this is the book for you. Isaiah is the book for you. As a matter of fact, I asked a few of the ladies in my church to bring, I mean in my family, to bring to church today their sketch pads. And they're supposed to be drawing a picture of my sermon, which you can look at their pictures after the service and that'll probably be better than what I'm saying. Uh, but Isaiah uses beautiful poetic language to help paint a picture for us. He uses his pen like a paintbrush. And this is one of the reasons Isaiah is very helpful. If you've known me, if you've been a part of our church for a while, you know I'm always like Isaiah's hype man. I'm pushing everybody to read Isaiah. And I tell you all the time, if you had to pick a few books of the Bible to be your favorite books, there's freedom in Christ to pick, but Isaiah really ought to be on that list, right? And one of the reasons is that the Holy Spirit uses the pictures of the prophet Isaiah to transform and renew our imaginations. The stories that we tell and the pictures that we imagine shape our lives. They shape how we feel and how we think and how we experience the world. I want to clarify from the beginning. When I talk about imagination, I'm not talking about pretending. Sometimes when you use that word imagination, we're thinking about pretend, make believe, fantasy. But what I'm talking about is learning to accurately visualize spiritual realities that we cannot yet see with our physical eyes. It's a little bit like going to a science museum. Anybody gone to the Oklahoma City Science Museum? Okay, I see several hands. All the parents of small children deeply appreciate during the winter month that science museum. Amen. Somewhere to take them. And here's what's happening at many of those exhibits at the science museum. They're trying to orient us to visualize, to picture things that are real, but that we can't see. Things we can't see because they're too small, like the structure of a cell. Or things we can't see because they're too big, like a galaxy, right? But scientists and artists and creative people are teaming up. And they're, they're making a display, an exhibit, which is visual. It may be tactile also. You can touch it. You can feel it. But it's helping you to touch and see and feel things that are real, but normally you can't perceive in that way. And often you walk away from that exhibit, not only understanding, but feeling for the first time that cells are real and that the galaxies are real. And I remember as a kid seeing an exhibit about teeth and germs and gingivitis, and it made me really want to floss. It changed the way that I lived. Amen, Nathan Bug. Is he in here? Our local dentist. So. That's an appeal to the imagination. And one way to think about Isaiah is he's a really good spiritual museum curator. Okay, each of his visions is orienting us to be able to see something that is real, but that we might not otherwise have been able to see. Now, as we keep going, verse two says it shall come to pass in the latter days. And now we got to pause again. You might underline your text. Those three words, the latter days. He's talking about the future. And the question is, what future is he talking about? When are these latter days? Isaiah doesn't really specify, does he? And as we keep reading through the book, he's going to keep talking about these last days. And for many of us, the the question that may pop up in our mind is, what event is Isaiah predicting? And I, I remember a moment that really helped me that I'm going to share with you many years ago in a seminary class with Dr. Willem van Gimmeren, who's a great Old Testament scholar. He said, when you get to these passages, don't ask what event Isaiah is predicting. Ask the question, how is Isaiah training us to imagine God's good future? What expectations is he creating for us 
eschatological expectations. That way he, that's what he said. That means how is he training us to see God's good future? And the story of the Bible shows us God's good future breaking into the world, often in waves and in seasons and one step at a time. But I'll give you a spoiler alert now. This vision, like almost all of Isaiah's vision, is ultimately going to be about Jesus and his kingdom. So everybody say it's all about Jesus. So what I want to do now is just walk through the vision. Vision. The rest of this is going to be a picture. And I'm going to make about five observations about this picture. I want you to visualize it in your brain. And if you're bold, you can even draw it on your bulletin. And think about it. The first observation about this picture that Isaiah paints is there's a really tall mountain in the center of the picture. Look with me at the middle of verse two. It says the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. So can you picture that really tall mountain? And it's the mountain of the house of the Lord, meaning the mountain of the temple, Mount Zion. Now, if anybody has ever been to this part of the world, visited Palestine, you will know that the, the hill where the temple is located is not the tallest hill in that area. Um, even the Mount of Olives is taller than this. But it's asking us to imagine God's good future. This mountain is lifted up. It's taller than all of the other mountains. And obviously, I don't think Isaiah is talking about a literal change of the topography. It's a symbol. But we want to look at the picture to think about What it means, because the temple and Mount Zion for God's people had a very deep spiritual significance. The temple and Mount Zion is the place of God's name. It's the place of God's presence. God is everywhere in all things, but especially his presence is manifest at the temple. It's the place of sacrifice and forgiveness. It's the place where God's covenant people gather together in his presence. The temple is the place of revelation where God reveals himself to his people and to the nations. The temple is also the place of renewal. Mount Zion takes a deep figural significance as the place where heaven and earth intersect It's ground zero for God's invasion of earth to usher in a new creation. So the temple is really important. But the surrounding nations also had important mountains. Baal had his mountain. Zeus had his mountain. They associated their gods with particular high places. So when Isaiah is saying, picture the mountain of the house of the Lord being lifted up as the highest mountain, the picture is saying to us, there's a time coming When God is going to show his glory as the God over all gods, the king over all kings, the power over all powers. And he's going to exalt his name and renew his people and reveal himself in a fresh way to all nations. Picture a high mountain. Second thing to notice about this vision that Isaiah is painting is some some rivers Acting in very strange ways. Look at the end of verse two now. It says, and all the nations shall flow to it. Or you could translate this, all the nations shall stream to it. Now the nations of the earth are being portrayed here as rivers. 
flowing towards Mount Zion. So you can picture a river of people and a lot of different kinds of people. Picture people with different skin colors, people speaking different languages, people who dress differently and listen to different music and have different clothes from all over the world. Okay, but they're flowing like rivers to Mount Zion. And not only is this an unusual stream because it's made of people, it's an unusual stream because of the direction it's flowing. Some kids, because you've gone to the science museum, you probably already know the answer to this question. Do rivers usually flow up or down? Down. Good job. Way to go, decents. Teaching kids something in that household. Rivers flow down because gravity, right? But. These rivers are flowing from the low places to the high places. Mountains are high places, right? So they're flowing against gravity, which means there's something about the mountain of the house of the Lord that has an attractional magnetic force that's stronger than gravity. And it's pulling the rivers up. What's happening? The different diverse ethnic groups of the earth are being drawn to the presence of God. They're being drawn to worship him. This is an image that's going to recur in Isaiah. He likes to talk about the ethnic groups of the world being drawn to his presence. For example, for a little homework this week, you might go look at chapter 25. Beautiful chapter where all the nations are being drawn again to the mountain of the Lord. And there's a big feast on this mountain. The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And Isaiah goes on to say at this feast, there was a fog Over the people, which is death and the fear of death. But the fog is now lifted at the feast of the Lord. And the life of God shines through like the sun. And God comes in in person to wipe tears from the face of all of his people at his feast at the mountain of the Lord. Anybody want to go to this feast? Doesn't that sound great, church family? Well, here's the beginning of Isaiah describing this. The nations are flocking to the presence of God. And they're coming because they want to learn from the Lord how to walk in his ways. That's what the text goes on to say. If you look at verse three, it says, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. So the nations are now coming as students of the Lord, as disciples of the Lord. First thing to notice is a tall mountain at the center of the picture. Then some strange rivers flowing to the mountain. Third thing to notice about this picture is the word of God going out from the mountain into the world. Look at the middle of verse three now. It says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's not just the nations coming to the presence of God. It's God sending his word To the nations. There's an outward and an inward motion. Centrifugal and centripetal. In the scriptures. The word of God is often portrayed. As an active. Dynamic. Powerful force. And where the word of the Lord goes. It has power. To judge and to renew. This week if you want another homework assignment. Who wants two homework assignments this week? I see that hand in the back. Jared. Jared loves the Bible y'all. Role model for all of us. If you want another homework assignment, go study Isaiah 55 as well. And you'll see the word of the Lord being sent out into the world to renew his creation. Here the word is going to the nations. And you can picture this any way that you want to. You can picture it as the word of God personified. 
But of course, in reality, the word of the Lord is carried by messengers. So as I imagine this picture that Isaiah is painting for us, I, I see a tall mountain with the temple, nations flowing to the mountain like rivers. And then the Lord is sending out teachers, prophets, sages who are going out from the presence of God to all the ends of the earth, to every tribe, tongue and nation, bringing the life giving word of the Lord. And as they bring the life-giving word of the Lord, something powerful is happening, which leads us to our fourth observation. Fourth thing to notice about this picture is that from this mountain, God is ruling the nations as a king who brings justice to a broken world. Look at the beginning of verse four it says he shall judge between the nations and shall decide Disputes for many peoples. Now, this word judge, mishpat, is a very important word, and it's used in different ways in different contexts. Without boring you with all that, I'm just going to read to you something from Alec Motyer, Old Testament scholar. He says, to judge in this context does not have the meaning of to condemn, but it has the meaning to put things right. To put things right. This is about God's... Restorative justice, judging and overcoming evil, bringing down much that is high and lifted up, putting an end to oppression in the world. But also it's about God lifting up the downtrodden. Some of you guys know that one of my favorite Christmas songs is Oh Holy Night, but it's mostly because I like that verse, which says, uh, truly, he taught us to love one another. Y'all know the verse. Some of you. His law is love and his gospel is what? Peace, his gospel of peace, change shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name, all oppression shall cease. That's what's being pictured here. The king, as he sends out his ambassadors to bring his word into the world, is extending his kingdom among the nations. His kingdom comes with justice, with judgment and grace to overthrow evil, to lift up the downtrodden and to set things right. Which leads to the final observation about this picture, which is that God's reign causes the nations to repurpose their weapons. And I'll say it like this, to reform their education system. I know we've got some teachers in the room. Look with me at the middle of verse four. It says, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. When God's kingdom comes with just judgment to set all things right, we won't need weapons anymore. Doesn't that sound great? The weapons of warfare that people use to kill each other, to oppress one another, or maybe to fend off oppression, are no longer going to be necessary. And instead, they're transformed into tools that are used to cultivate life from God's good creation. And because of that, the last phrase says they shall learn neither shall they learn war anymore. That that phrase just has me thinking. I know, church family, that there's a lot of teachers in the room and that as we've been engaged, not only sharing the gospel and making disciples in our community, but asking the question, what does it look like for God's kingdom to come more fully to the community where we live? We've been involved in lots of 
conversations about education reform over the last few years. And I'm just inspired here to think about the fact that so much of our education system is trying to teach people to dominate one another and win. But this is a different vision. What, what would it look like to create schools of peacemakers? What would it look like for the church to be an entity that disciples people, that forms people to be instruments of his peace on earth? That's the picture. Can you see it in your mind, church? Is it inspiring? Anybody got some hope stirring up in your heart? Are y'all, y'all with me this morning? You can talk back to me, church. I know I'm not Jared, but you can talk to me, too. Can you see it in your mind, church family? Okay. Now, the question is, what are we supposed to do with this picture? After we visualize it, what are we supposed to see, do with that? And verse 5 is a transition verse. If we kept reading through chapter 2, the rest of chapter 2 is much more depressing. Okay, Isaiah is going to go on and describe the darkness that prevails during his own time. He's going to talk about spiritual brokenness and idolatry and all kinds of sin. But there's a transition verse in which he says, oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I want to think about what that means. Light, of course, in the scriptures is a common symbol. It's a symbol of God's truth, of his joy, of his holiness. It means walking according to God's word. It means walking in a way that reflects God's character. But I want to suggest one of the things it means is this. Isaiah is painting for us a picture of God's good future. And we're supposed to look at that picture. We're supposed to think about it. We're supposed to meditate on it so it can renew our minds and our imaginations. And that bright, shining future shines a light on our present So that when we're done looking at this picture of the future, we can face with gritty realism the reality of our own time and place with a renewed mind and with renewed creativity and wisdom. Isaiah does not give a bunch of rules here for what does it mean to live in the light of this coming future? Does he mean we got to abolish the army? Well, I don't think that's what he meant for his original hearers, because God's going to continue to give the kings of Judah instructions about what to do with their army. But Isaiah is going to be quite explicit throughout his book that the people of the Lord are called to wait for the Lord, to hope in the Lord. And part of what that means is cease doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, as he said In chapter 1, verse 17. Or is he going to pick it up in chapter 58 when he says true fasting, true spirituality is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. In other words, he's saying God's good future needs to shine light on our present in a way that empowers us to be people of truth who believe in the truth of God, who glorify God, who devote ourselves to the word of God and who are trained by that word to be people who do justice and who love mercy and peace. That's what he was saying to his original hearers. And ultimately, that's what he's saying to us today as well. So I want to end with raising this question. What does this text from Isaiah mean to us as disciples of Jesus today? And especially, how can this help us with the spiritual challenges that are before us in this Advent season in 2022? Well, we talked earlier about two Advents. Everybody say Advents with an S on it. Advents. There are two Advents of Jesus. 
In his first coming, Jesus inaugurated the peaceable kingdom of God. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross, says Paul in Colossians. By dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus bore our evil and all of its consequences so that anybody who comes to Jesus in faith can have peace with God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that Jesus is our peace, not only making peace between us and God, but tearing down the wall of hostility that exists between the peoples, the nations, the ethnic groups of the earth. Jesus came like a wrecking ball, tearing down every wall that would keep us from being united in love with God and with one another. Jesus is our peace. He came, died on the cross for our sins, rose again and poured out the Holy Spirit, commissioning his church to go out from Zion, literally from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to all of the ends of the earth, bearing his word, making disciples of all nations so that the nations can come to the cross of Jesus. And isn't this beautiful? Isn't it amazing? The way that Isaiah 2 is fulfilled, where Zion is exalted as the highest of the nations, is through the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, going to the hill called Golgotha. God's glory is made known most clearly through the suffering of the Son of God on the cross. But the nations are coming to the cross. And at the cross, they find the body of our Lord, the temple of the Most High God, the place where God's presence is breaking into the world, the place of revelation where God reveals his heart to the nations. It's the place of sacrifice and forgiveness. It's the place where God's covenant people gather for spiritual renewal and restoration. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ becomes the place where God's creation is being made new so that if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. Jesus already did all that. He already started all that. He already inaugurated the kingdom of God. But we live in the tension between what he's already done and what he has not yet done. We're waiting for another advent. Church family, have the nations yet beat their swords into plowshares? The nations are still killing each other, not only the nation states of the world, but within our nation state, we still got some friction between cultural groups. Does it feel like America is characterized by profound unity at this moment of our history, church family? Ethnically, we're divided. Culturally, we're divided. Politically, we're divided. Economically, we're divided. And Jesus is promising a day when he comes that there will be peace once and for all. When Jesus returns in glory, we all the nations will learn how to love each other. We'll be united to God and his one family to dwell with him forever. That will be the end of death. It'll be the end of sickness. It'll be the end of pain. It'll be the end of sin forever for all who have trusted in him. But in the meantime, we're waiting. We're hoping and we're preparing. Those are our three words. Everybody say, wait for the Lord. Everybody say, hope in the Lord. Everybody say, get ready. Those are our Advent themes. What does it look like to wait for the Lord, to hope in the Lord and get ready? I'm going to be honest about the fact that I don't feel like culturally and generationally we are very good at waiting. Anybody agree with that? We're the fast food generation. We're the microwave generation. 
If you want to amuse yourself this afternoon, go find the Brian Regan bit about Pop-Tarts, okay? In which he makes the point that if you get out your Pop-Tart box, there's two sets of directions, one for the toaster and one for the microwave. It says, if you don't have time to toast your Pop-Tart in the morning, you may be packing it in too tight, right? But, but we're in a hurry. We're rushed. And we're used to pulling out our phones and being able to be constantly stimulated. We can be instantly gratified. Most of us, I'm not talking about anybody in particular, but in a general way, most of us are not capable of listening to a sermon for 30 or 45 minutes, amen, without getting on social media. You're supposed to laugh. I'm not judging you, church family. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) But it's true. (laughs) And uh, that's why God made podcasts. You can go back and listen to it later and take notes and draw the picture that I was talking about. But... We're not very good at waiting, is my point. We need to learn this spiritual discipline. Like Simeon, like Anna, as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke. The Holy Spirit doesn't only move fast, he moves slow. Remember that a couple months ago? Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, waited for the consolation of Israel. He waited. Sometimes as we're waiting, we're walking through dark times where it feels like the Lord is hiding his face from the house of Israel. But to wait means, even in the dark times, our eyes are fixed on the peaceable kingdom of God in the future. Our hope is set fully on the grace that will be revealed when Jesus comes in glory and makes all things new. And the more we stare at that picture, the more we become a countercultural people who are rooted in our identity in Christ. We're not defensive. We're not insecure There's a strength that comes from the Holy Spirit that allows us in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our churches, everywhere we're going to be a people of hope and a people of peace who speak a gospel of peace, peace and who serve neighborhoods. Now, I don't want to be too prescriptive about what this looks like, but at your community groups this week and in our fellowship, I'm going to invite you to imagine together what does it look like to live this week as signs of God's coming kingdom? What does it look like to live today as people of light, even when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? I trust the Holy Spirit to do the dynamic work among us of teaching us to live this way. But I do want to pray a few things for us specifically. And I want to invite you to stand as I pray. Church family, as we get ready for Christmas, I'm simply inviting everybody to come to Jesus again or to come to Jesus for the first time. If you're here spiritually seeking, I want to plead with you, come to Jesus. That's the place of peace. Come to Jesus. That's the place of forgiveness. Come to Jesus. That's the place of hope. His death and resurrection is our only hope and his second coming. But for those of us who have been Christians for many years, the invitation is still the same. It's come to Jesus. And as we come to him, I pray that we'll be renewed. So I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. And I just want to pray a simple prayer over us. As we get ready to respond to the word with one more song of worship. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would renew our minds and our imaginations. Holy Spirit, make us a people who think often about the second coming of Jesus. Give us grace to see in our mind's eye. What you have revealed about the coming peaceable kingdom of God. Lord, I pray this would awaken fear of the Lord. That we would not be flippant in the midst of the world's darkness. But I pray that it would also bring us great comfort and hope. 
Please make us a people who exalt your name above every other name. Make us a people who are hungry for your word because we know your words are the words of life. Make us people who are zealous to make disciples of all nations. As the nations are in our midst, some 70 ethnic groups in Oklahoma City, and also to the ends of the earth, other parts of the world. Holy Spirit, come make us people of justice and truth and mercy. That in a world where there's so much affliction and oppression and suffering, we would be people who bring hope. Lord, where we ourselves have been guilty of sin, call us to repentance so that we can walk in the light of the Lord. Make us instruments of peace for your name's sake, O Lord. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.